I began my career in private lending at a startup. I'm a ground floor employee at what is now one of the largest private lenders in the country for real estate investors. An immeasurable benefit of this journey has been the incredible minds I've been able to learn from and spend time around. Two of those folks took over the podcast for this week. Jeff Tennyson, CEO of Lima One Capital, is the guest host for this week. And Goodmunder Chris Johnson, co-chief investment officer of MFA Financial, a publicly traded REIT, joined as a guest. How are massive tranches of loans sold? How do multi-billion dollar REITs pick and choose their partners, the loans that they bring aboard? What in the world is loan securitization? What purpose does it serve? And how do you go about structuring deals worth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars? These guys have the answers. They really peeked under the hood. I have a page of notes from this episode and hope you find it equally as educating. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Uh, I'm Jeff Tennyson, the CEO of Lima One Capital, and I am a guest hosting today for Dalton Elliott, uh, who is out for a week, but uh, has done a great job uh, building this podcast and putting some great content and a lot of great partners of of Real Estate of Things, uh, sharing ideas, sharing thoughts. And so we're really pleased with the, with what's been going on with the real estate of things. And today we have a great guest joining us as well, Goodmunder Christensen, who is the co-CIO for MFA Financial. Goodmunder, welcome to the real estate of things. Jeff, thank you. Thanks for inviting me to join this podcast. Um, it's fun to be with you here to talk about the BPL space, and I'm excited for our conversation. Now, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and, and Goodmunder is the, as I mentioned, the co-CIO for MFA Financial. MFA is a publicly traded residential mortgage REIT. And I guess I should add at the onset, uh, the recent new owner of Lima One Capital. We announced uh, collectively July 1st that MFA uh, has uh, acquired all of the shares of Lima One Capital and become our owner. That's been exciting for us because, you know, MFA, you and MFA have been uh, equity partners and whole loan buyers of Lima One for four plus years. So the whole transition from uh, partner and whole loan buyer to now owner has been really a fun transition uh, and a fun process. So no, we'll get into that maybe a little later in our conversation, but wanted to make sure. So, you know, tell us a little bit about MFA. You know, what is a mortgage REIT? How do you and your team play with the business purpose lending space? And uh, just tell the listeners a little bit about uh, what's going on. Yeah, no, thanks, Jeff. Uh, appreciate the question. So uh, MFA Financial, we are a mortgage REIT. Uh, we're headquartered in New York City uh, and listed on the New York Stock Exchange. We have been publicly traded for over 20 years with over $2.5 billion in total equity base. We invest kind of across the residential market space, which includes both securities as well as whole loans, but with primarily focusing on what we call credit-related assets. And that really means securities, whole loans that, that derive most of their yield income, if you will, from credit as opposed to just interest rates. Uh, historically, you know, we invested in securities, and this is going back in time to like, you know, the the, the early 
you know, 2000s to 2010, where we invested primarily in securities. These were Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, mortgage-backed securities, some private label securities backed by mortgage whole loans, non-performing and re-performing loans, as well as, you know, notes backed by mortgage uh, servicing rights. And, uh, you know, really after the 07, 08 financial crisis, we got really um, aggressive and deep into credit analysis. And that's when we acquired a lot of uh, what we call legacy non-HGMBS. These were securities that fell in value after the subprime crisis. It was a great trade for us. You know, it was, was, went well for us for many years. But more recently, we've been primarily focused on, uh, you know, investment activity in what's called non-QM and business purpose whole loans. And uh, that's where most of our activity is these days, and where we're finding the best opportunities kind of in the residential mortgage space. You know, we have an investment portfolio of over $7.5 billion. Off that, uh, approximately $1.3 to $1.5 billion is, is kind of business purpose loans. So talk a little bit. Let's, let's talk about kind of the, the whole buying process that you guys go through. We've got a lot of listeners who are, you know, private money lenders on their own accord, small uh, private money lenders that could be it would be interested to know. Talk about when you're buying, you guys, you know, I mean, you mentioned, uh, you know, you bought a big chunk of business purpose loans uh, in Q3. Uh, and uh, so you're very invested, not only in Lima One, but in other lenders, if you guys buy business purpose loans from others. Talk about what you're looking for in an originator that would, would catch your attention and, and, and interest you in buying their loans? Right. No, that's a good question. And, and as you mentioned, and you kind of alluded to it on the, on the beginning of the podcast here, we, we have known each other since 2017 when we first got to know Lima uh, as, as we got you know, interested in, in the broader BPL space. And so we put a lot of effort into kind of researching space in 2017, kind of identifying it as an, as an attractive area to deploy capital so we met with various originators, you know, figured out what products made sense to us and, and you know, started acquiring loans. And we've bought over, over 3.5 billion of business purpose loans since inceptions. And really, you know, what we're, what we're looking for now that we have you know, got a lot of experience under our belt is, you know, we, we look for partners that think about credit similar to us. You know, it's important to kind of see eye to eye fundamentally on where do you want to deploy capital because, when you build a whole loan trading uh, relationship, there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into negotiating, you know, loan purchase agreement, various legal documents, setting up the trading process, the settlement process. And so, you know, before you go down that path and invest energy and time into it, you want to make sure you, you align fundamentally in terms of the approach. So it's important to us that the originators almost think as principles in the, in the terms that they you know, want to create, quote, good product that, that, you know, they care about their borrowers, that they perform on their mortgage, but also that the borrowers are successful, identify good projects, exit uh, profitably, and so on and so forth. And, and we find when we make, take the time to build those relationships and identify the right partners, that just bears incredible amount of fruit down the road, because it means that, you know, if when things get rough, we're, we're all aligned as opposed to fighting, fighting among ourselves when there are issues, because it always, stuff always happens. Yeah. Is there, I mean, is there a size limit that, I mean, because there's a lot of work on both sides. I mean, there's work on your side and approving an originator uh, to, to buy their loans. And I'm assuming you're expecting on the other side, originators uh, to, to also have some 
processors, procedures. So what's the typical size of a bulk of loans? I'm assuming you don't buy one loan at a time and that type of thing. You're looking at larger uh, bulk purchases. That, that's right. I mean, we, we, we like to set up, as you say, bulk purchases, but, but you know, m- most likely it's what's called a flow arrangement where we're you know, routinely buying a pool or a bulk of loans you know, every single month, multiple times a month, and so on and so forth. And look, since, since we are a, a large publicly traded company, I mean, we have, as I mentioned earlier, $2.5 billion in total equity and, and, and over $7.5 billion in assets. You know, we are looking for something that is meaningful us, uh, that can make a difference for our shareholders. And so as you think about that and put it into context, I mean, you know, I, we ideally would like to see someone who is, you know, has the ability to sell us, you know, 25 to 50 million a month of paper, right? But, you know, the other way we think about it too is if you identify someone of, of quality, you know, that has maybe an undersized, uh, uh, you know, operation, but who clearly has the ability to grow, we can be, you know, somewhat patient and, uh, and help them in other ways to grow. One is to provide the certainty of the takeout from the loan perspective, but also in some cases, you know, make equity investments or other capital commitments to nurture those, those companies and, and grow over time. Similar to what we, we did with Lima back in 2017 and 18 and, and, and later. So. Well, and I think, you know, people listening to this should, should recognize that's exactly from Lima One's perspective. I mean, you know, we were doing 15, 20 million a month in total production when we first met. Um, yep. And you guys, you know, helped us by buying you know, 3 million, 5 million, 10 million, those kind of things. But you had a a vision, as did we, to get to where that 25, 50 million a month was something that was worth your time and worth our time. Uh, So it's a, it's because I'm assuming typically when you're buying these loans, you're not actually table funding, you're buying closed loans that these originators have already underwritten, closed, and have them on their warehouse lines today. That's correct. We we buy closed loans. MFA is, you know, we're not an originator. We're not licensed as such, which which requires, you know, other other legal operational aspects, which which you as an originator quite well uh, know. And so so we are an asset aggregator. And as such, you know, we, we work with multiple originators uh, to source our loans uh, and purchase from from multiple entities, and uh, so you know, which is which can be challenging. It, it you know, you gotta manage multiple relationships. You gotta you know, you gotta build them. You gotta nurture them. And you gotta identify the right partners. And it's also you know, competitive space out there. So you know, from our perspective, again, like I said, like it, it is very important to identify the right partners. And then, you know, work on those relationships, not unlike, you know, any other successful relationships, you know, to get bigger over time. And like we, you know, we we also like to, you know, support our, our partners, as I said, to, to help them grow. Because selfishly, you know, if, if we if they are producing good, good quality uh, loans that that are attractive and high yielding, it's, it's in our best interest to allow them to, to do more origination. And so we can acquire more loans. Well, I think a lot of times so many private lenders are, are, are small entrepreneurial-led originators, and they're like, how can we get large and big like you know, the larger national lenders? It really starts with teaming up with somebody like yourself who, because there is the, 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 the need for capital uh, is, is horrendous at the point as you begin, because whether you're doing 
you know, putting it on your warehouse line and holding it till you can aggregate enough to send you 25 to 50 million. Or, you know, a uh, topic I want you to spend a little bit of time on today is securitizations. You know, it's impossible to do a large securitization without a, a pretty big slug of capital. So I think that's, that's right. I think the, the message to some of these smaller private money lenders is find a good institutional partner uh, that will allow you to grow. Uh, that will support your ideas and 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 strengths and uh, you know fortunately for Lima One we found MFA and grew together and it made a big difference as we did grow together and build together uh, we learned your strengths and you learned our weaknesses at times and we kind of pulled those together uh, uh, to make those all uh, all work. Um, but to your point, I mean, like from the perspective of growing, like in ter- terms of. Uh, you know, desire to get bigger. I mean, it's it is sometimes a double-edged sword because you can be quite profitable and successful managing a small operation where you know you're controlling all aspects of the loan creation process. You know, you can identify you know higher coupons maybe or higher fees that you can charge on a, on a smaller subset of loans in your local area, right? And so, and that can be a nice niche. But if you want to scale up and gain volume. You really have to make it a repeatable process. You have to make it a, a a repeatable process, not just to yourself and the next two or three people that you that you trust, but your whole organization. Uh, and and then you know you have to start trusting people in the process. And to do that, to scale up successfully, uh, you, you need to then start focusing more on the infrastructure and the operation, as opposed to optimizing the revenue on each individual loan. And that's where you know the 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 strength of of really specialization comes in, like. Allowing, for example, Lima in this case to focus exclusively on creating good loans, expanding their products, the product offerings, and then you know utilizing MFA's you know cheaper cost of capital and experience, as you mentioned in in financing and the securitization market. I think when you do that and you team up like that, you kind of build a whole uh, manufacturing process where you're really creating value along the entire chain. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's, let's, you bring up securitization. I think let's move to that because we get a lot of questions from uh, just industry partners and others about the securitization market. Uh, you guys are very active. MFA is very active in that space. You know, what what is securitization and particularly how does it work to be a good source of financing uh, for a mortgage REIT and with business purpose loans? Right. No, that, that's a good question. I mean, you know, look, the securitization, securitizing is, is, is nothing really, it's nothing new. I mean, securitizations have been around for a long time. And you know, those that want to study it can read up on the, on the birth of the CMO market in the 80s and the 90s and all kinds of various structures, obviously made famous in the, in the subprime crisis by, you know, various movies and books. Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, like the really, like the, the basic concept is you're, you're pulling a, um, you know, a group of assets that are similar to it to, it, to each other. In this case, whole loans into enough size, and then you take those loans and you you pledge them, or they, they provide collateral to securities or bonds or notes that you issue and sell to uh, investors in the in the in the in the secondary marketplace. And you know, by doing that, you essentially you know create liquidity for either an originator that, that does it themselves or an asset aggregator like ourselves. Uh, and you know, at the same time, you give investors that don't have access to this, these types of particular assets uh, an ability to invest in that type of credit or whatever the risk exposure is. 
and therefore creating liquidity for everyone across the whole food chain. And so, you know, from that perspective, it really is a, um, you know, elegant mechanism. And, in, you know, in most cases, uh, someone who's securitizing or a securitizer, they usually retain a certain amount of bonds. So they, they always retain risk in it or skin in the game. And in fact, right now it's, you know, it's, a, it's an essentially regulations or law that you have to retain a minimum of 5% risk retention in the securitization that you issue. So essentially by doing that, you're aligning interest that the, the, the people issuing these bonds have continued involvement with them. And if, they, if, if the underlying assets go bad, they suffer along with all the other investors. Now, as you pointed out, because of that, obviously, you, know, you have to have capital and balance sheet to retain that interest. And typically, MFA retains anywhere from 5 to 10% of the, uh, of the bonds of, of, the, of the, the, the securitizations that we do. And so from that perspective, you need to have capital. And, and so a large balance sheet helps with that in terms of retaining those interests. So just to be clear, kind of the mechanism. So when you talk about a retained interest, a 5% retained interest, a typical securitization would be 200 million, 300 million in size? Yeah. So securitization, can, like, so I think like 200 million is usually, that's the size that you want to do. And we can get into that a little bit later. I mean, there's costs associated with that. So you, 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 you're going to want to gain some efficiencies there. I mean, securitization, can, they can be as large as a billion dollars, right? But you know, typically, what we see in our market is probably anywhere from two hundred to four or five hundred million in terms of deal size. And then, uh, and so, I mean, I think that's important for for people to truly understand. When you say retain, there's two elements to that. One, a five percent retention on a two hundred million dollar deal means you have to basically put into this deal ten million dollars. That's right. And that's not right. only that, but by being the bottom part of the capital structure in this example or the bond structure, the first losses are going to come in to that $10 million that you have to reserve for That's right. anywhere from a year to five years to 10 years to however long the bond is. Yeah, that's right. So you're highly incentivized, obviously, for, for the underlying loans to perform because you take the first losses. And so you're, you're incentivized to make sure the servicing is, is up, to, up to par and like, you know, it's you know we we spend a lot of time when we you know market these deals to to make sure people understand that our interests are aligned and pre- predominantly through this because our our capital is at risk if something goes wrong. Yeah. Now I think that's important for people to note. I mean, you can't just do a five million dollar securitization uh, primarily because of the legal cost and the regulatory cost and all the different components that go with that. And and again, that's the value of a large uh, partner, institutional partner like an MFA, uh, to folks like all, that, that's the reason you buy the loans, hold them, and deal with that oftentimes as opposed to Lima One being the issuer uh, of a securitization. Yep, that's right. Uh, and then in the BPL space, uh, what's, what's the big advantage of, I mean, of the business purpose loans today in that securitization market? Are you seeing it across the board in all the products that we offer uh, wh- where are you seeing the strength of securitization at this point? Yeah, I mean, so the, yeah, so the securitization market has, has been quite uh, vibrant and lively over the last eighteen months. Um, a lot of volumes in just the broader mortgage uh, space, and obviously in the conforming space, there's been a lot of loans created with all the refinancing. But in the BPL space, it's it's it's, it's essentially two markets, broadly speaking. One is the you know, term rental loans, uh, and then you have, you know, the fix and flip, bridge and the ground up aspect of it. And so 
On the term rental loan side, that market is more established, um, more matured, more accepted. Most of those deals are um, are rated. So there's a rating agency that will rate the bonds in those deals. And the ratings go from AAA all the way down to B. Uh, so it's AAA, single A, digital double A, single A, triple B, double B, and single B, and so on and so forth. And that those those uh, letters represent the credit quality on particular secu- security that's issues. So, but because they're rated, uh, there is a certain amount of standardization, and it's it's well understood by various uh, fixed income investors who also buy you know uh, securitizations or, or bonds backed by other types of loans, you know loans that homeowners. Uh, own and so on and so forth. On the fix and flip side, the rating agencies, they don't have the same amount of experience, track record data to analyze losses, uh, because that's predominantly what they're looking at when they're putting the ratings on is, is you know, what can go wrong. And so the right. models don't fully capture all those aspects of a, of a bridge loan, of a fix and flip loan. So they just struggle with, with rating those types of deals in any meaningful way. And so those deals tend to be non-rated, and therefore there is, you know, more diversity in terms of, you know, the, the type of structures that are put together, and it's it's just less homogeneous. Now, there's been a decent amount of those, those issues, though, over the last, like I said, you know, 18 months, and there seems to be developing a little bit of more standardization. You know, there's still more 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 room to go there, but you know, the 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 fact that there is a viper market is obviously a benefit for. You know, everyone associated with the BPL space, whether it's the the you know the operators on the ground, the people who are actually doing the work and rehabbing the homes, you know, an originator like Lima or our or an investor like us, because it does create and bring liquidity to the space. Yeah, no, it's it's an exciting. I mean, it's really great to see the the, the rating agencies getting comfortable with it. That that also adds another level of confirmation to the bond markets that you know the right processes and controls and all the different components that go with it. And, and it's the real benefit of kind of seeing us being able as an originator, that kind of method of kind of cost of funding, cost of financing as an originator is allowing us to have better rates, better products in the marketplace for our borrowers. And it just kind of snowballs down to, to, to all the people that, that get the advantage of an active, safe, important investment that the ultimate bond investors like. That's right, and it's it's interesting you use processes because many of these things are are I guess somewhat you know mundane and boring in the sense that like to be able to bring a securitization, you know, having good data, having clean data, being able to tell the story that you know you service the loans in a certain way, you know, how do you deal with delinquencies? How do you assist borrowers? You know, you know, how do you manage you know cash flows and funds? All these things that come along with again, this is scale and operational aspect. But you know, if you can de- get that done well, you know, it helps you in terms of you know bringing better deals, getting lower cost of funds. But this is the thing that we talked about scale, right? You know, doing a few loans and you know making very nice money on a few loans versus scaling it up. If you want to scale up, you got to do all these things right. Like you got to do the uh, to the servicing aspect well and all the data and the operational aspect, but that then brings benefits which because you can you can bring securitizations and other things of that nature. Yeah. Now, you know, the hot topic in the business purpose space right now is mergers and acquisitions. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, you uh, uh, there's been a surge of acquisitions uh, 
like in by institutions like MFA, you guys acquiring Lima One. I mean, Predium just announced they acquired Anchor Loans. NRZ announced they acquired Genesis. PacWest acquired Civic. Uh, uh, and then, you know, a year or so ago, Redwood acquired Corvest. So there's a, you know, the, the, the top probably three to five originator, five to seven originators in the space have all gone through some kind of merger. What's creating the interest in the business purpose lending space to acquire these versus just buy the loans? Well, I think, it, you know, it's it's a part of a you know broader trend that we've, we've seen, you know, not just this year and last year, but, you know, the last you know, five to six years, really. Like when, when you look at asset managers, you know, private equity funds, people like us, mortgage REITs, does, does anyone who manages a large pool of uh, capital in the, uh, you know, the mortgage space or even just the broader fixed income markets, you know, with rates coming down, you know, the Fed buying a lot of assets, it does create a, a, a competition for, for assets and access to assets. And so as, as some of the... Uh, lower yielding spaces are crowded out, it, it pushes people to look, you know, into other areas and other spaces. And, you know, historically, the BPL space was fragmented. It was a lot of hard money lending, local lending. And so it was hard for institutional investors to gain foothold in it because we talked about this a little earlier. To, to really accumulate size, you had to build a lot of small relationships and, and buy a lot of loans from from many, many participants. So if you are an investor like myself who's used to, you know, buying bonds in size and really just, you know, you have a lean team and you're, you're good at doing the analysis, but you don't, you don't really want to manage hundreds and hundreds of like correspondent relationships. So from that perspective, as you look into the space and say, okay, it's attractive, I can make good returns here. Anyone who is, has a good track record and is sizable, and it has, has the ability to originate loans across the entire country becomes then an interesting target or, 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 of some of these larger players. And so I think that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing uh, the importance of creating the asset, of controlling the asset creation, the, the flow of asset onto your balance sheet. And so, you know, and it's also just, you know, competitive. If I don't do it, someone else will do it. So you, you protect your turf. Uh, but I think it's a real vote of confidence in the space that people see a real benefit, uh, nice nice returns, and it's it's a commitment to the space too. Because at least from our perspective, I think it's it's really a, 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 we're showing a tremendous amount of commitment. We're going to be here for the long run. This is not a short term trade where we're buying a few loans. We envision this as a as a business where we can continue to grow it and, and do more in the future. Uh, you know, I think that's an interesting comment because, I mean, when I first got into the space, when Blackstone asked me to help him start B2R Finance back in, you know, 2013, I guess it was, you know, there was basically three players in the space. There was B2R, there was Colony, which is now Corvest, and, and then there was First Key, which doesn't exist anymore. And from that, at that point, the whole debate, we just finished the IMN Single Family Rental Conference in Scottsdale. And, you know, it's amazing to me that, you know, less than 10 years ago, there were only three people on the stage that had any, any, any ability to originate. And as a result, the question was, is this just a trade or is it a true business and industry? And it should be real confirming for, for not only the originators listening to this podcast, but the real estate investors who we all serve 
through this process because there is a very consistent national source of financing for their projects that with people like you and others in the space, uh, there should be real continuity and real consistency, which does allow this to be a multi, multi-billion dollar industry for years to come. I think that's right. And I, I do think, you know, the the space is still maturing um, and, and there's still plenty of, of way to go in terms of, you know, bring more maturation, more, um, I think it's going to be more consolidation. Some of the uh, the bigger national players will get even bigger. There will be mergers that will happen. And I think that's all good. It's good in the sense that it, it brings, as the market benefit, matures, it brings tremendous benefits to, I think, the again, like the operators on the ground that are doing all the work that are transforming the old housing stock in the United States, which is pretty old and, you know, creating attractive, you know, first time properties or, or home, home ownership opportunities for families, you know, which would otherwise not be there. Well, I just read an article today, actually, by Redfin. And, you know, for the, the largest percentage ever of home sales were sold to investors in the third quarter. 18% of all home sales in the third quarter went to real estate investors. And it's right. not just the big, you know, invitation homes, large institutional people. It's really, you still in this, in this market today, uh, the small three to five to 10 person who owns these properties uh, is the dominant. A 92%, 94% of these people are, are those type folks. And so it really does create real optimism as this industry matures, as our processes enhance, as all the different components that go with it uh, make a big difference. Uh, well, we're getting close to, to wrapping up uh, a couple of, uh, you know, it's getting close to Christmas. It's around the corner. Uh, so, you know, I guess uh, to do a little lightning round with you, Goodmunder, for some fun, you know, tell us something um, interesting about yourself that listeners probably wouldn't just know your the name gives it away that you're probably not from South Carolina, <laughs> but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and maybe uh, what are, what are you, what's the big ask of your kids for Christmas this year? Wow. That's a big one. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, yes, but the name probably gives it away uh, so, something for it. So I, I'm, I'm born and raised in Iceland um, and uh you know, moved here in, in 2004 to go to college up, up in Cornell, Ithaca, you know, lived in Chicago for a little bit. And, and then I'm now in, in New York. And, you know, people get to know me, they say like, oh, oh, okay, you just like to be where it's cold. And, you know, I guess that's not really true, but that's just how it, how it turned out to be. So, you know, now me and my wife now live here. Yes, we, we got two boys, 10 and 12. And, you know, we, we, we like living in New York City. And one of the nice benefits of that is there's a uh, it's a melting pot and all kinds of cultures, so that, that's fun. As it relates to my boys, you know, what was the question? What do I want them want them from them, or what they want from me? Yeah, what do they want from you? We really don't care what you want. <laughs> um, you well, know. I can tell you, there's a ten and twelve year old boy. So, so really, most of the things that they like has something to do uh, with with video games and computers. You know, there, there's you know, gaming this and that, and you know, or some sort of credits for some sort of a you know, metaverse thing that no one understands. And it's, it's, it's fascinating. They're, they're, you know, they're great kids, but it definitely has something to do with technology and video games. Yeah. I talked to a friend here in the Carolinas whose 12 year old son 
uh, like a year and a half ago, talked him into letting him spend like $500 for cryptocurrency uh, <laughs> that today is like worth, you know, like, I don't know, whatever he spent, it's worth like $200,000. And this kid's like, you know, uh, so I think, uh, I think we ought to, I think our kids are going to teach us not only how to do video games and technology, but, uh, how to handle cryptocurrency. I like that. I might may steal that idea. I might tell them there are no presents. They are all, all in the form of some sort of, a, you know, cryptocurrency. It's, uh, everybody gets one Bitcoin. And, That's right. And then they'll have to keep up with the uh, the logarithm to to, uh, to keep up with it forever. Good, Munder. This has been fun. Thank you for taking the time, sharing ideas, sharing insights about the market uh, and what's going on from the institutional side wishing certainly wishing you and your family a great holiday season as that comes upon us and uh you know you're welcome back anytime actually you'd probably have a better conversation with dalton so uh you know, <laughs> next next time we call you and ask you to join the real estate of things request the real host dalton elliott and uh, probably be even a more fun event but thanks a lot appreciate it and uh let's keep lending money well thank you jeff i, I think you, you know you, you're being too humble you did a did a pretty good job here uh, yeah, no, it was a great conversation. Thanks for inviting me, and uh, you know, appreciate the opportunity to talk about the uh, the markets and you know our relationship. And yeah, wish everyone happy holidays, and you know, appreciate it. All righty, thanks a lot. Talk Thank to you, you soon. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry, bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.